Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 60, The Esoteric and the State in Ancient Rome, Part 1, Late Republican Esotericism. Hopefully listeners by now have some idea about the basics of ancient Roman history. The last episode gave a kind of rundown of the early centuries of Roman growth and development. In this episode and the next one, we want to look at the esoteric in Roman culture from the late Republic, roughly the first century BCE, when we sort of transition from the Hellenistic to the Roman period. And we want to take this opportunity to introduce an element which has been largely lacking from the podcast so far, the political dimensions of esotericism. There are two main things we should talk about in these episodes. Firstly, it'll be really cool to look at a group of Roman intellectuals of the first century clustered around Cicero, who seem to have been esotericists. These were elite members of the governing classes of Rome, but they were also interested in neo-Pythagorean ideas, in astrology, and in recondite lore more generally. And speaking of astrology, the next episode will be a perfect place to have a quick introduction to this art or science in the Roman world, again with reference to state power, because that is a fascinating story. Already in the Hellenistic period, we have evidence of monarchs consulting astrologers. Seleucus, the founder of the Seleucid Empire, for example, is said to have consulted astrologers as to when he should found his new capital city of Seleucia, in what is actually a very interesting story and one of our earliest references to catarchic astrology. That's the astrology which looks for good times to start stuff. If, that is, our late sources are recording a real event. It's hard to tell, because astrology became so widespread in the Roman world that this is the sort of story which later Roman period authors might have assumed to have happened, even if it didn't happen. But more on that next episode. So early Roman esotericism at the highest levels of the state and astrology and the state two very interesting topics. But before we get to either of these, we need to have a think about what we mean by esotericism in the Roman context. Indeed, it's always good to stop and think about our terms in a project like the Schwepp, because not everything that's weird and oogly-boogly is necessarily going to belong under the rubric of Western esotericism. So first of all, as listeners to our introduction to magic in the ancient world in episode 6 will know, Roman culture was thoroughly saturated by belief in magic arts. Prominent here were the belief in powerful female practitioners, witches, in ghosts and various ways of interacting with them, in curses, in talismanic objects, and in all sorts of divination. Now, all of these categories have some overlap with the category of religion, which is often a problem when discussing magic, but here we have another problem in that some of these practices were not only mainstream, but were actually essential parts of Roman identity and the functioning of the Roman state. So how are they esoteric? The answer briefly is that for anything we might consider esotericism in Rome, we need to nuance exactly what is going on. So basically there is no answer that covers all these phenomena across the board. We have to look at case by case. One dimension of this is the licit versus illicit dichotomy. The Romans were big on making ritual practices that they saw as either foreign and unroman, or dangerous, or both, 
illegal, as we shall see. In fact, the definition of magic in the Roman world is, in a way, very clear. Magic, magia, is any ritual practice considered illegal in Roman law. End of discussion. Or rather, beginning of discussion, because when you're hauled into court on a charge of magic, you can try to argue that what you're really doing was religio, legal or even praiseworthy cultivation of the gods. Or you can say it was philosophia, philosophy. Obviously, the religio argument would appeal more to Roman traditionalists. The philosophy argument was on slightly more dangerous ground because philosophy itself was seen by many Romans of our period as a possibly suspect and dangerous foreign import. But more on that next episode. Along with the licit-illicit dichotomy, we need to consider the rhetorics of the esoteric when we're trying to figure out what Roman esotericism is. Is the movement or practice, or whatever it is we're looking at, being depicted as something for an inner circle of initiates, or for a philosophic elite, or what have you? We have a lot of very non-esoteric divination in Rome, for example, but also what seems to have been a lot of esoteric divination. So just saying divination isn't going to tell us anything about whether a practice was esoteric or not. Now, let's have a quick look at some Roman oogly-boogliness in the context of these two categories, forbidden versus allowed and exoteric versus esoteric, and see what we come up with. Now, witches. Female practitioners of powerful rituals were pretty much seen as a bad thing in the Roman context. Although there were certain female ritualists, like the Vestal Virgins, who played a major role in state religious life. But the Vestals were what their name says, virgins. Their enforced chastity can be read as a way of controlling their unpredictable female power. I don't want to get too Freudian here, just to emphasize that while there were limited legitimate roles for women in public cult, Roman society as a whole tended to view ritual as a man's job, and if women got involved in it, it was probably for questionable ends. Now, witches were definitely illegal, but were they esoteric? Well, not really, I would argue, for the following reason. The podcast, for the most part, defines esotericism as something people frame for themselves, either by saying that their work is reserved for an initiated crowd, so saying, the wisdom I'm about to impart is esoteric, only the select can read it, or so on and so forth, or by reading the works of others and saying that those others were in fact esotericists. So an example of this might be Philo of Alexandria reading Moses and making him into an esoteric writer. Now, witches have no voice in the written sources we have remaining from antiquity, except in occasional bits of dialogue written by men. In other words, there are no witches, as far as our evidence goes, and thus they cannot exercise the rhetorics of public hiding and revealing which constitute the act of esotericism. They may occasionally be framed in terms of secret occult knowledge, in which case they are sort of like esoteric characters, you might argue. However, the majority of the emphasis we find on practitioners of secret learned wisdom or magical powers in the Roman world centers on the male figure of the magus. And as we shall see, the magus sometimes can speak for himself and even argue that being a magus isn't to practice dark arts, but rather to engage in the highest philosophy and religion. So in terms of esotericism, in a way you have to have someone with a voice declaring that what they're saying is esoteric, or that the meanings they're unearthing 
from a tradition are esoteric. And if a figure doesn't have a voice, such as the witch, she sort of by definition can't be esoteric because she's not able to make that claim. All right. Ghosts. Here there are some overlaps between the esoteric and the exoteric, and the forbidden allowed dichotomy also runs into some gray areas in the case of ghosts or spirits of the dead. And now we have to talk a little bit about traditional Roman religion. The Roman myths, as transmitted to us, were, as we know, largely overwritten by Greek myths. This is one of the many signs of the Roman adoption of elements of Hellenic culture. Even the stories they told about their gods went Greek. So Zeus becomes Jupiter, Artemis becomes Diana, and so forth. Listeners should be familiar with this phenomenon. But here's the thing. Roman religion preserved loads of aspects, especially in practice, which show the earlier non-Greek roots of their culture. One of these was a particular Roman practice of ancestor cult or animism or a bit of both. The Roman world was absolutely full of quasi-deities or mysterious spiritual entities. The Romans cultivated the lares empenates, for example, who both were sorts of local minor gods. The penates could also have a wider dominion than the lares. There was a temple to the penates of Rome, for example. The lares tended to be a bit more localized. You'd have lares of a given neighborhood, for example, in Rome, or of a river, or of a house, or a crossroads, or so on. Indeed, the head of a Roman household, the pater familias, who was sort of the oldest male relative, was in charge of the private family cult of the lares, a family-based religious practice without parallel in Greek religion. Seemingly, the lares, at least those of a given family, somehow embodied the ancestors, the dead family members. So the Romans were sort of ancestor worshippers. They certainly believed, as part of their idea of pietas, that offering the proper cult to the family lares was a very, very important thing. When Aeneas fled the burning ruins of Troy in Virgil's Aeneid, which we talked about in the last episode, he was a living symbol of Roman pietas, the proper respect due to family and the household gods. He carried his old father Anchises on his back, led his son by the hand, and bore the statues of the household Penates with him as well, so that he could refound his home in Italy. So he's like the perfect Roman here in his relationship with his family and with his gods. His wife followed at an appropriate distance and indeed got lost in the tumult and killed. Never mind. This scene tells us a lot about what the Romans thought important about social relations and relations with the gods. But there was also a dark side to this Roman animism, if we can call it animism. And here's where the oogly-boogly stuff really comes in. Firstly, the Lares often took on frightening chthonic forms. And there are echoes of an early belief in a mother of the Lares, a quite frightful-seeming female deity called Mania, a few echoes of whose stories persist in the Hellenophile mythological poets of the Augustan era, like Ovid. So we don't hear a lot about Mania, but we sort of get little fragments of evidence that she had once been very important as a mother figure to these Lares. Then there were the Manes, Chthonic deities, deities of the earth, with a very sinister reputation. These are a sort of horde of unnamed gods of the dead. There are also the Larwai and Lemures, 
somewhat interchangeable terms for terrifying spirits, either of the restless dead, so people who died without having um, proper burial, or women who died childless, this sort of thing, or of the properly evil dead. So these are the demonic forces of the afterlife, and belief in them seems to have been very widespread, even after the triumph of Christianity in the 5th century CE. Larwai and Lemures have a lot of cultural staying power. Now, this is what we might call folk religion. There's nothing esoteric about it, but we shall see it enter into the highbrow discourse of esoteric philosophy in due course, with thinkers such as Plutarch, Apuleius, Iamblichus, and many others. This stuff is oogly-boogly in the extreme, but I wouldn't call it esotericism, at least not at this stage in the development of Roman thought. It's totally mainstream, it's, it's ubiquitous actually, and while it evokes a kind of occult atmosphere, for want of a better word, these beliefs in the deities or spirits associated with the dead are not expressed as being the province of some select initiate group. Nevertheless, we want to keep an eye on these beliefs, as they have echoes in esotericism right down to the modern period. As for talismans, that is, physical objects embodying the stored power of a ritual, they were absolutely everywhere in ancient Roman culture, as we discussed in episode 6. Every Roman boy or girl, soon after their birth, was given a protective bulla, a little leather bag that they would wear around their neck containing little apotropaic charms, and this would be removed at their public coming-of-age ceremony. Magical gems abound from the Roman world. All sorts of everyday objects were given inscriptions with a magical or quasi-magical intent in the Roman world. The Greek magical papyri, which are written in Greek, of course, but which tell us a lot about Greek, Egyptian, and Roman magical beliefs, are a further source of evidence that talismans were the thing in ancient Rome. More on the Greek magical papyri when we get to late antiquity, by the way. Again, is this esotericism? Is this mainstream religion? Is it magic? What is it? Take your pick, but what it definitely is, for our purposes, is a fertile tradition of magical objects, which in later times, especially as we shall see in the Middle Ages, acquired a fully Western esoteric iteration. Indeed, the science of astrologically informed talisman making is one of the staples of Jewish, Christian, and Islamicate Western esotericism right through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. We can maybe see its lowbrow ancestor throughout the Roman world. So it's good to know about these um, amuletic practices in the Roman world, if only to see the kind of ground out of which the later more philosophically informed, scientifically informed types of talismanic magic grew. Turning to curses, defixiones in Latin, these are a category of ritual practice which we know was officially illegal in the Roman Empire, but which we also know was widespread in the extreme thanks to the rich evidence of the lead curse tablets found at temple sites. Now, we shall discuss these in a separate episode. Again, nothing too esoteric here, but very interesting stuff in terms of the relationship of state power with rituals of power. Many of the curse tablets are aimed specifically at gaining victory in court cases. So the state, if their official opinion was that curses worked, of course, had every reason to try to forbid their practice. You can't allow people to subvert the course of Roman justice with divine help, obviously. But more on that in a special episode devoted to the curse tablets. Now this subject segues nicely into that of divination. The Romans had an official body of diviners, the College of Augurs, whose job was to take the auspices, 
which meant looking at the entrails and especially the livers of ritually slaughtered animals to see whether the gods would be in favor of a given enterprise. The Romans would not set out to war, make peace, or do anything else of moment to the state without consulting the augurs first. And this was an ancient and beloved Roman tradition, which lasted well into the period of Christian hegemony. Such was its cultural prestige and its links to the ideas of what it was to be Roman. So even in the Christian era, of course you had to have the augurs taking the auspices because we are the Romans, right? We've also mentioned the Sibylline books in a previous episode. These were a set of allegedly ancient, very cryptic, prophetic verses, which the Romans would consult in times of dire peril. So in times of state emergency, it was time to get out the Sibylline books. So here we have two examples of divination right at the heart of the Roman state itself. We have ample evidence, too, of less highfalutin divinatory practices at every level of Roman society. And if you're interested in ideas about divination in Rome, you want to see Cicero's On Divination for some great philosophical discussion of whether divination worked, or only some of it worked, and if it worked, how did it work, and so on and so forth. But the rather skeptical Cicero will not just come out and say that divination is nonsense. And one of the reasons for this is that to attack divination as a whole was to attack one of the central pillars of the Roman state itself, and this is something the traditionalist Cicero was not interested in doing. So, in both of these cases, curses and divination, we see a very interesting dialectic play out in two very different ways, between state power and practice of what we might call magic or rituals of power. In the case of defixiones, the state simply wants to forbid them altogether. This was probably a manifestation of the state as a monopoly on violence. Defixiones worked, and that's not the sort of power you could allow common people to exercise. In the case of divination, the state wanted to enforce another monopoly of sorts. All manner of divination practices were declared illegal at various times by the Roman Senate, as we shall see. But, of course, the Roman Senate itself ran partly on divination. So I hope we've made a few points here. A lot of practices and beliefs, which would be labeled as evil or as magic or as demon worship or what have you by later Christians, were completely normal in Roman traditional religious life. And the state, in fact, had a major stake in some of them. So, as we shall see with the development and rise of Christianity, some of these things that are totally mainstream and not at all esoteric in the context of traditional Republican and early imperial Rome will become esoteric and forbidden under the culture of Christianity. The traditional Roman world was alive with gods and spirits, from the highest Olympians down to the humblest Lar, and the state was very keen to grab all that divine power for itself. There were frightening, dangerous sides to this supernatural world, and that too was something the state needed to monitor and control. Now let's move on and have a look at the first generation of homegrown Roman esotericists, or at least the first generation that we can identify. We don't know much about these folks, but piecing together all the evidence, we start to get a picture of very interesting goings-on in the Roman upper classes of the late Republic. We'll need to look especially at three names here, Cicero, Varro, and Nigidius Figulus. So let's start with Cicero. Marcus Tullius Cicero was not an esotericist, but a lot of what we can say about early Roman esotericism is transmitted by him. This is because Cicero, 
a man who made his way from humble origins in one of the Romans' many allied Italian city-states to the very top, almost, of the Roman political world, a Latin stylist widely recognized as the greatest of all time, such that people still to this day read his boring legal speeches just because they are so smooth, a man with a great interest in contemporary Hellenistic philosophy, but whether he himself can be called a philosopher or not is open to debate, someone who claimed single-handedly to have saved the Republic from a conspiracy to overthrow it, and some people actually believed him. This man, Cicero, his works have come down to us in splendid form, and he tells us all kinds of precious details about the world he lived in. And he knew everyone. So he tells us, sometimes by accident, some really fascinating stuff about what seems to have been a kind of Roman esoteric craze or fad in the first century among the upper classes. Indeed, an esoteric craze among the elite of the optimate party in Roman politics. So who were the optimates? The rivalry between the so-called optimates and the populares, the two major political factions of the late Republic, doesn't really map very well onto modern politics, but you could do worse than thinking of the optimates as old-school Tories or conservatives. They're all about upholding the privileges of the powerful and maintaining the economic status quo. So Cicero was an optimate through and through, though being an adept politician, he was, of course, able to shift his position when it suited him from time to time. Now, one of Cicero's mates and political allies was the great Varro. Marcus Terentius Varro lived from 116 to 27 BCE. He was an upper-class gentleman of the late Republic and held various government posts. He was a prominent political player, in fact. He studied philosophy at Athens under Antiochus of Ascalon, a very important figure for the development of Middle Platonism, as we shall see in two episodes' time. So he did what a lot of upper-class Romans of his day were doing and went to Athens. During Caesar's civil war of 49 to 45 BCE, Varro fought on the side of Pompey against Caesar. So he was on the optimate versus the popular side. But Caesar, who won, later pardoned him and put him in charge of setting up the first public library at Rome. This is a sign both that Varro's talents as a man of letters were highly appreciated by Caesar, who was a cultured fellow, and that Rome herself was developing a Greek-style literate elite and was eager to make books more accessible, hence the founding of a library. Under the Empire, so from the Battle of Actium onward, Varro managed to gain the favor of Augustus, the first emperor, and then he retired to study and write in comfortable independence and to have erudite literary conversations with friends like Cicero. Now, Varro was what we'd call a thoroughgoing man of letters. He wrote voluminously on every subject under the sun, and though little survives of his writings, we know that he became a respected authority on many matters in the later Roman Empire. So people kept quoting Varro for hundreds of years, and that's how we have what we do have of his works. And one of his interests seems to have been in esoteric currents of thought from the Greek world, particularly various elements of Neopythagoreanism. He's said to have been buried in a ceramic coffin, which our source Pliny tells us was the Pythagorean style of burial. Now we can contextualize this along with a lot of other scattered evidence as an example of upper-class Romans adopting elements of what they saw as a Pythagorean way of life. This was, of course, Neo-Pythagorean, or Neo-Pythagoreanism, 
these folks were not living together in communal fraternities or anything like that. They were probably adopting what today would be called trendy alternative lifestyle choices. Varro also seems to have written a book on arithmology, which would no doubt have been associated with Pythagorean lore, though we can't say much about this work as it's definitively lost. And last but not least, he also had a chapter on astrologia in his lost work on intellectual disciplines. Now, astrologia was a relatively new thing in Rome when he wrote his book, and it was certainly a new thing in the Roman upper classes, but we'll talk more about that next time. So that's Varro, an example of an upper-class Roman interested in all aspects both of Roman lore and of the new sciences and philosophy coming in from the Greek world. And Varro seems to have included among his interests a keen interest in some esoteric ideas. Although maybe we can say he was probably a dabbler rather than a fully-fledged esotericist, if such a thing exists. But now let's turn to Nigidius. This gentleman, Publius Nigidius Figulus, lived from 98 BC to 45 BC. So he didn't quite make it to the empire. He was a late Republican. He seems to have been of the senatorial class, so he was a proper aristocrat, and he too, like Varro, held various government offices, including that of legate in Asia, which meant that he spent a lot of time among Greeks outside of Italy. Like Varro, he was a political ally of Cicero, and like Varro, he wrote on many subjects, little of which survives. With Nigidius, we seem to have our first true Roman esotericist who emerges onto this stage of history. We can't say much about his exact beliefs or what he really got up to, but one thing we can say for sure is that later generations thought that he was a diviner, a magician, a Pythagorean, and a seeker of esoteric lore more generally. His name is associated with thaumaturgy, with, you know, magical wonders, with Pythagoreanism, and with astrology. He was remembered as an important politician who played several key roles in the turbulent events of the late Republic, but also as someone who could prophesy the future through astrology or find lost treasure through divination rituals. Let's look at his reputation a little bit. Saint Jerome, in the 4th century, calls him a Pythagorean and a mage, a magus, in strongly disapproving tones. And this is actually fairly typical of his reputation if we take Jerome's Christian bias into account. Suetonius, who is the racy biographer of the first 12 Roman autocrats, tells us that it was a widely known story that Nigidius had predicted that the infant Octavian, the future emperor, would come to rule the whole world based on the hour of his birth. So in this account, Nigidius is an accomplished natal astrologer. Or, alternately, if we want to be skeptical about this account, we can say that Nigidius is the go-to guy if you are a later Roman author wanting to tell a story about predictions of Augustus's future destiny, and you need a contemporary name to attach the story to. You say, ah, Nigidius, of course. The first century CE Roman poet Lucan wrote a quite extraordinary Latin epic poem known as the Pharsalia, and the Pharsalia tells the story of Caesar's civil war, which we mentioned a little while ago. At the end of book one of the Pharsalia, a crucial moment in the narrative, Nigidius steps up to make some dire prophecies of how disaster is coming for the Roman state. It's great stuff, but our interest here is in how Nigidius is portrayed. So incidentally, he's referred to in the text as Figulus, the potter. No one really knows for sure how he acquired this nickname, the potter, but anyway, there it is. Quoting from book one of the Pharsalia. 
But Figulus spoke, he whose care it was to know the gods and the secrets of the heavens, whose knowledge of the stars in their number and movements not even Egyptian Memphis could equal. End of quote. Okay, so Nigidius Figulus has a reputation as an astrologer, greater even than the Egyptians of Memphis. Now, what truth was there in all this? Well, we have no real reason to doubt it, in fact, and we'll get to astrology in Rome in the next episode. But what we can say for now is that astrology in Nigidius's time was a pretty new import to the Roman world, and one which carried with it a lot of suspicion from the powers that be. So, Figulus was treading not only on esoteric territory, but on territory bordering dangerously on the illicit with his astrology. Now, these have all been later testimonies to Nigidius's reputation, but his divinatory powers are actually seemingly attested to in his own day, and even by his close friend, Varro. So, the middle Platonist philosopher and occult novelist Apuleius tells us that he read in Varro, whom he calls a most learned and erudite author, which is what we've come to expect from Varro's readers. Apuleius tells us that Varro says that a certain Fabius lost 100 denarii, which is a tidy sum of money, and he came to Nigidius for help in finding the money. Nigidius then used incantations to inspire certain young boys with the power to tell him where the money was. They located the pot containing most of the money, which was buried, and some of the cash had been dispersed to various people, and they also told him to whom. So, Nigidius, if we are to believe this anecdote, was practicing the time-honored art of divination by the medium of boys, something which pops up quite widely in the Western tradition, and something which does not feature in the approved canon of modes of divination that the Roman state looks kindly upon. This is esoteric stuff, in fact. As a contemporary account from one of Nigidius's close comrades, this is really interesting because we probably can put some faith in this anecdote that Nigidius really did do this sort of divinatory conjuring. Now, Cicero tells us in his incomplete Latin version of the Timaeus, and can we just say here that this work is really interesting, unfortunately we don't have all of it, and it was probably never completed anyway, but in it, Cicero recasts Plato's Timaeus into a Latin discussion between Nigidius Figulus and a guy called Cratippus, some Greek. So whatever form the work would have taken in its full form, which we don't know, it, it's at least clear that Cicero was doing something new here, not just translating Plato. He's taking Plato and putting his uh, dialogue into a Roman context with Nigidius Figulus as a main interlocutor. It's also clear, I think, that Plato's Timaeus's reputation as a Pythagorean dialogue probably influenced Cicero in casting Nigidius in the starring role, as Nigidius was the man who was, quote, enriched by all the branches of knowledge which are indeed worthy of a free man, also an acute and hard-working investigator of those things which seem to be hidden by nature. Finally, in my view, he was the one who revived the Disciplina after those noble Pythagoreans, whose Disciplina was somehow wiped out, though it had thrived for many centuries in Italy and Sicily. End of quote. Now, there's a lot of debate over what Cicero means here. What was the Pythagorean Disciplina? Well, Cicero probably means something quite inclusive, like a way of life, though he's perfectly aware that Nigidius is not actually refounding 
the Pythagorean brotherhoods. And we don't have enough detail to say what other aspects of Nigidius's practice would have been seen as Pythagoreanism. Did he wear a beard? Was he vegetarian? Or was Cicero referring more to his magical powers, which were the sort of thing that was increasingly associated with Pythagoreanism throughout the pseudo-Pythagorean writings and tales of the Hellenistic period? And what doctrinal teachings were part of this discipline? We don't know. We can't say. But it's clear that to Cicero, Nigidius is the big Pythagorean at Rome. Now, some scholars have uncritically taken Cicero at his word here and said, in essence, Nigidius Figulus refounded Pythagoreanism or founded Neo-Pythagoreanism at Rome in the first century. This is a ridiculous oversimplification, in my view. Um, in the first place, what does it mean to found Neo-Pythagoreanism? Neo-Pythagoreanism is not a single movement, as we've discussed in previous episodes. It's something that had varied facets across Roman and Greco-Roman society. But never mind. Other scholars have read this in all sorts of other ways. But I think maybe there's two things we can take away. One, Nigidius was interested in Pythagorean lore, by which we mean presumably anything in the pseudo-Pythagorean corpus that he had access to. See episodes 46 to 48 for more information on the kind of texts that were out there. And two, Nigidius was interested in esoteric knowledge. Quote, those things which seem to be hidden by nature. End of quote. Perhaps Momigliano was right in calling Nigidius, quote, a Pythagorean of the modern caste, which would include occultism, astrology, and Persian doctrines about the ages of the world. End of quote. Now, all of this is vague. What do we mean by occultism in the ancient context, for example? But maybe Momigliano's idea captures something of the right flavor of what sort of guy Nigidius was. Now, we've introduced a few interesting characters about whom we can't really say all that much, unfortunately. Well, we can say a lot about Cicero, but we're not really that interested in him. Nevertheless, we couldn't pass over these early Republican aristocratic esotericists without some discussion, because they're just interesting folks. But they are, of course, only a tiny aspect of what was going on in Rome in the first century with regard to esotericism. In the following episode, we shall look at a much broader picture, which will help us contextualize what figures like Varro and Nigidius were doing, but also set the background for the explosion of interest in a specific esoteric science recently imported to Rome from the Hellenistic world. I refer, of course, to astrology and the strained yet fascinatingly intimate relations between the Roman state and astrology, this powerful new science. I hope you'll join us as we explore the relation between the Roman state and the stars in our next episode, until which time, investigate assiduously the things which nature has hidden and stay esoteric. Mm -hmm.